0: This is the O'Reilly Bots Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm Pete Skamorak. Today we'll be talking about the bot ecosystem from the perspective of a bot builder, some of the platforms and the frameworks and the technologies underlying bots, as well as some things about bots that need to develop a little bit more in order to become commercially feasible at a wide scale. Today's guest is, not coincidentally, also a speaker at O'Reilly Bot Day. That's a program we're putting together on October 19th in San Francisco. If you're building bots or thinking about building bots or thinking about bot strategy, you ought to be there. It'll be a landmark event. For more information and to register, visit O'Reilly.com bots. Our guest today is Andy Morrow. He's got a deep background in conversational interfaces, having worked on them in a bunch of different settings, and now he's the co-founder and CEO of Automat. Automat is a startup that makes it easy for non-machine learning experts to build AI bots on a variety of different platforms. Welcome, Andy.
1: Uh, great to be here, guys. I've been loving the podcast so far.
0: So you've been working in conversational interfaces for a long time. How long was it? Uh, embarrassingly, 16 years. <laughs> What's gone on in, in that 16 years? Is this Does this moment in bots feel like it's the culmination of 16 years or is it something completely new that's that's popping up?
1: Um, very much so in terms of culmination. I mean, you know, I started a company because I believe this is the culmination of a lot of things. So if you look back, you know, when I started 15 years ago, 16 years ago, it was sort of the beginning of the commercialization of speech recognition and things that could understand uh, humans in the way that we spoke. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, it was primarily audio and the speech recognition had gotten just good enough. Maybe maybe 80, 85% accurate, right? Where you are sort of like one in every five words is wrong, Mm -hmm. Um, just good enough to start commercializing applications. But there was only like a couple companies on the planet that could actually build that kind of technology. And it was so expensive back then that there was only a few companies on the planet that actually had business problems large enough that they were willing Mm -hmm. to take a risk on it. And so that was sort of the first phase. And it was really interesting because all of the companies that we think about now in the second and third phase, um, Google, Apple, Mm -hmm. Amazon, et cetera. Many of them use that first stage technology to bootstrap their sort of second stage so a really famous huh. example of that would be a uh, goog 411 right if anyone remembers that I mean that was really the genesis of using some of the first generation phone speech recognition IVR stuff to bootstrap data collection and start building models for what has since gone on to become Google assistant and Google now and the same is true across virtually every company you can think of Microsoft acquired tell me tell me was very much a voice IVR company and while there's been really big changes in the techniques. And I can't be sure that there's code living, you know, that was 15 years old in some of these systems, for sure, the DNA and the learnings is there. So that was really the first phase. And then the second phase was these kind of mobile voice assistants, which went from just creating the raw technology into mass popularization and awareness of conversational technology, primarily through Siri, mm-hmm. um, and the assistants that followed Cortana, Google Now. Um, I had built the first with my team. Um, and prize mobile voice assistant who was deployed pretty broadly, mm-hmm. um, pretty successfully. And then in this, I think really messaging is and bots are the third phase um, of what we're seeing. And it, it very much is a culmination. I think that culmination leads us from the raw technology being proven to consumer awareness to now we're making the technology available to companies of all types, large and small, um, in a way that is going to really drive mass uh, adoption, not just awareness, because frankly, the, voice assistants have not received, uh, gotten to mass adoption. So I think this third third phase is where it comes together, where consumers are, where bots are being built, which is primarily messaging platforms, not exclusively if we look at things like Alexa, etc.
0: You mentioned the term IVR a second ago, um, which is something that you hear a lot of voice user interface designers mention. What is IVR?
1: IVR stands for interactive voice response. So that's the over the phone based stuff that you hear.
0: For reservations, say reservations. Exactly. For a representative, (laughs) say representative.
1: Exactly. Very well done. Uh, You can get a voice
0: talent job anytime John I'm sure uh, <laughs> Um, O'Hare so, International Airport is a non-smoking environment.
2: So, Andy, does this, uh, thinking about the history, I, I, while you were walking us through that, I was reminded of uh, 25 years ago, there was this killer demo by Scully from Apple mm-hmm. Knowledge Navigator. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that. I do. Um, and and if anybody, we'll put a link to this in the the podcast notes, but it's worth a watch as kind of a, a check at how far I think we've come. And um, it was interesting, like, from what you remember that, how close do you think we we are to the vision that they painted 25 years ago.
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, so interestingly, one of the guys that's on—not to brag, but one of the guys that's <laughs> on my board, uh, Gary Clayton, actually worked on that demo. So he was the chief creative officer wow. at Tell Me, and so now we work together. So there's there's a lot of old blood that is still believing in getting computers that people can talk to that is still around, and so lots of new blood too. But um, so the DNA sort of runs deep with us, and um, that's a the question is really interesting, and 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 there's a few things that strike me about that knowledge navigator demo. One of them is that it was inherently multimodal. Mm -hmm. So it was voice input, but a lot of structured data, visual output. Um, And everyone tried that with Hmm. Siri and mobile voice assistants. But we learned something really fascinating that we didn't anticipate, you know, five or so years ago when we were building those those products, which was that on voice mobile assistants, the multimodality is more like a railroad track where you switch over, which is to say, Hmm. if you're speaking, you're really kind of in speaking mode which is why Siri will often pause and then start listening to you again, right, without you having to press the button again. Right. And so you're kind of in the speech modality, even though there might be visuals on screen. And as soon as you provide some tappable visual input, the user just immediately switches over to tapping and forgets like a goldfish that they were ever talking. And so it wasn't truly multimodal in the way that Knowledge Navigator was. And I think that's why messaging is interesting, is people are generally not talking to messaging apps, they're typing. And their fingers are on the screen and the difference between tapping and typing, which is freeform natural language input and tapping something or receiving visual output, an animated GIF, a video, whatever, Mm -hmm. is much more natural. So in a weird way, even though we think of voice and knowledge navigator, like I'm talking to it from across the room as the future, Mm -hmm. in a weird way, right now the future is messaging and it's actually a little bit more retrograde, some might say, than than pure voice. And I want to be clear, I mean, Tim and I have talked about this at length, right, which is Alexa is a different experience. Yeah. I really mm-hmm. believe in voice in private environments, your car, mm-hmm. your home. And I do think that over time, the private environment will change and people will become more comfortable speaking to things. But right now, people really generally, consumers on mobile are typing. And so I think the Knowledge Navigator idea of multimodality is actually coming to fruition in messaging more than it did in voice, mm-hmm. um, number one. And then in terms of the AI, Pete, I mean, you know this. Um, we're a far cry from any kind of open ended input with generative output where we can actually create the responses back. And so I think that's one of the key challenges right now is creating systems that are much more flexible than these sort of tree view, kind of things that you see all over the place. But being realistic about the fact that any type of freeform input and then freeform output that's generated is is still, generally speaking, a little bit um, far outside the, the range of what we can do today.
0: There are a few startups that are trying to sort of jump the gun on that a little bit by putting a human in the loop, right? To create that um, kind of demonstration capability, like in, in the video that you're talking about from um, from Apple in the 1980s, the um, the sort of main character says something like, find me all the papers on Aboriginal traditions in the 18th century and identify the best ones. And then it comes back and it's like, you know, Bronson wrote one in 1983 that's well regarded. So uh, that's kind of similar to the experience that you would have with like Finn, right? Which is a service that uh, does research for you and kind of manages a bunch of stuff, but with a combination of AI and and a human assistant who's behind it.
1: Um, Yeah, I think human in the loop is an enduring pattern. Um, even the company name automat if you go mm-hmm. search that up very much at least along one dimension inspired by the idea of you know the old school automats with you know automated front ends and real humans providing you know great food behind the back end um, so we were that was not lost on us in terms of that name. Um, and so we believe in, in human in the loop. But I think it's, it's emblematic of a larger pattern that's coming into play, which is related to automated learning. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people talk about machine learning today. And what they really mean when they say that is, I've got some open source framework, like, you know, I've got a TensorFlow or something else. And I'm taking raw logs, and I'm manually data science annotating my mm-hmm. way and then training on that. And then I push something out live and then I do it all over again to make it better. And it's a super manual process that is generally only in the hands of sort of PhDs Mm -hmm. um, and data scientists. And whereas automated learning, which is, I think, what a lot of customers, right? If you're talking about companies that are looking to get into the space, when they hear machine learning... They hear learning, and they hear these things should be getting better over time. And so I think there's many techniques that go into automated learning, many of which that we're investigating, and I think some of which we're pioneering. And I think human in the loop is one of those. So if you Mm -hmm. can actually put a human in the loop, you can latency and, you know, uh, employee availability notwithstanding, cost notwithstanding, which Mm -hmm. is not a minor point, you can improve the experience in real time. And then the question is, what do you do with that human output? And so um, that's a really important one. A lot of people talk about being able to learn from human yeah. in the loop. I think you need to ask the question, how do you do that? And get a pretty specific answer. That's something we've been um, looking into and done some pretty foundational research on at Automat. Um, not an easy problem to solve, but I think a very fruitful line of, of uh, inquiry.
2: So something related that we've talked about before, Andy, is... AI and bots can intersect in a co- in a few different ways. Um and so one way that jumps to mind is training on a lot of conversations to make the conversational UX better, right? So to get from for your example of voice it was okay it understands, you know, 4 out of 5 conversations bring that closer to 5 out of 5. So there's some equivalent in the world of uh now that we're typing with our thumbs instead of speaking to the <laughs> to the to the app or to the bot, uh, people type in different ways now. It's it's much more colloquial. There's emojis. It's 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 a, a longer tail uh, natural language problem uh-huh. than uh, you know understanding New York Times articles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's one sense of learning, which is these are the types of questions my customers ask my bot and, you know, these are the types of responses I should give in those cases. Um, but then there's another case, which is uh, exposing some AI or machine learning. So we do, we talked about a few Microsoft bots um, in the podcast where you give it an image and it interprets something in the image uh, via a bot, or you give it an article and it summarizes it. So what, what type of AI are you thinking about uh, when you talk about uh, what you're doing at Automat?
1: Uh, again, great question. I mean, we get asked that all the time, right? By customers saying, what does AI mean to you? Because it just Mm -hmm. seems like it means everything to all people and it's very ill defined. And I think that's very, very true.
0: Did you, did you guys argue about whether to use AI in association with Automat? Was there a question as to whether the AI word was, was ready for it?
1: Um, I mean, there's no dot com domain. So, I mean, at the bare minimum, you have to buy the Anguilla domain. I'm sure that's a win. Someone should uh-huh, do a podcast uh-huh. about the windfall to, you know, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so n- the answer is no, because it's clear that artificial intelligence is having a moment and for good reason. Right. There has been um, legitimate breakthroughs in the last, you know, decade, and they've gotten commercialized in the last Mm -hmm. few years, right? Of course, we're talking about things related to deep learning, you know, my hometown of Montreal, um, Yoshua Bengio is, you Mm -hmm. know, one of the three founders of deep learning and is very close to home. And, um, you know, there's real legitimate techniques that we use every day, um, thanks to those guys and the wealth of papers that are coming out and it's real, right? And so Mm -hmm. when I talk about the last, you know, 15 years, it always felt like we were tuning, sort of 80-20 rule that we were always in that last little bit tweaking. Mm-hmm. And with a lot of the techniques related to deep learning, it actually feels like there's a ton of headroom available to for improvement, right? We were sort of able, you know, some of these guys talk about, you know, Jeff Hinton and others talk about, you know, at Google putting in deep learning and translation or speech recognition and like getting to equivalent or better accuracy than the prior generations of systems like very, mm-hmm. very quickly. And then there's just tons of headroom to get better. So I still haven't answered Pete's question at all, but (laughs) in terms of what we talk about, we very much think in terms of, um, I use this term, it's not meant to be a marketing term, it probably is, which is conversational language understanding. And the reason I use that is because past generations of natural language understanding systems for the most part took the sentence input at that particular point and understood, people use these words intent and entities, Mm -hmm. it's everywhere. That, to me, is just a total failure uh, of an ability for an industry to get out of the machine learning rut. Like The way we popularize this, the way that it gains mass appeal and any company can deploy it is by holding ourselves to the same rigor that our products need to, which is to say these should not be thin veneers of UI on I'm already a machine learning expert or a PhD. They have to be completely rethought from the ground up, I think, in terms of saying, how does a normal person who maybe can build a website, right? My wife's an artist. She built a website for her portfolio and mm-hmm. didn't ask for any help, right? I shed a tear. She didn't need any technology <laughs> help, but that's, uh-huh. that's what bots need to be for the, to fulfill this promise. And so when we talk about conversational language understanding, we talk about things like being able to take the context of the technical. entire conversation into account and not have to pre-program every response, not have to, again, these tree view builders, right? If you're a customer and you're thinking about this and someone's showing you a tree view that looks like a Vizio, mm-hmm. like runaway screaming, because <laughs> that means you have to think of every single path in the conversation yeah. and you you're hard coding it. It's hard coded and you can't do it. And so you need systems that can be smart about understanding conversation paths that make sense, ones that don't make sense, ones that can get reinforced over time with different automated learning signals, be it hu- human in the loop or others, and um, and get smarter over time so that these tools are sort of put in the hands of creators and you know business people and not strictly developers. Although I think you want these tools to appeal to developers as well. So a lot of the tools that are out there today fall in this gap where they're not powerful enough for developers Mm -hmm. and they're way too overpowered and complicated for a business person or a marketer or a creative. And so they fall in this void. And so, you know, I'm kind of dodging your question a little bit, Pete, but that's where we spend a lot of time thinking about How do we solve for that? How do we how do we get that class of user, that class of company able to build really powerful bots Mm -hmm. that have real artificial intelligence that is, you know, papers that have been published less than a year ago, implemented and figured out and put into the technology. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about that when we have a beer together. But customers never need to know. I mean, Mm -hmm. AI should be invisible to the end user in order for it to be really useful. And most of the time we put it front and center. And I think that's a big problem.
2: That that's a great picture that you're painting because I've seen a bunch of these tree view things that you talk about, and the first thing that jumped to mind when I when I hear the, when I saw those was, uh, for software engineers, you know, there's there's people always selling the promise that you won't have to write any code anymore, and you'll and then what they're what the the person is usually building who's saying that it looks just like what you described. It's some point and click thing that's going to write some massive replace some massive program that you would have written. Um, and I think it often ends up being a lot more work than actually just writing the code. Yeah. Um and it's very hard to visualize and keep track of what's going on with something as complex as a conversation. Um so like the other the other thing that comes to mind when you said that is memory. Uh, if I think about most of the examples you gave of old school voice recognition, it was very much word at a time. Um, doing the best it can. Maybe looking back a couple of words. It sounds like you're talking about connecting, like deeper, uh, deeper into the conversation.
1: Um, that's a super important part of it. I mean, a lot of people talk about context, and what they really mean is that they have some code in the back end that says if the person said this or typed mm-hmm. this earlier on, then do that, and they call that context, right? Um, we were doing that demo many, many years ago. Um, and you know, frankly, it's really impressive. And then you look under the covers and you go, oh, that was an if then else statement that right. kind of sucks, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, people talk about the the massive switch statement that's inside of Siri, right, for instance. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean,
1: <laughs> listen, I'm all for one thing that that people talk about is like, you have to use all these new school techniques and everything like uh, Pete, things related to like long, short term memory networks, LSTMs and deep learning. Like it's legit as it relates to being able to non-programmatically, non-if-then-else statements be able to retain context of a conversation in a way that is, you know, somewhat defies intuition and is happening at the neural net level. Mm-hmm. But it really works, right? Which is is kind of the cool part about it and the thing everyone likes. But it's okay to, to mix and match some of that with, you know, when you talk about memory, there's, there's memory of a dialogue. That stuff's really computationally intensive right now. Mm-hmm. It might be okay also to remember where someone lives as an address and not try and like learn that in a neural net. That would be like a really stupid way to do that. So I think mixing, you know, what people would call the sort of symbolic techniques along with, you know, neural net type techniques is, is actually a pretty reasonable approach. You want to be pragmatic at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing that happens with deep learning is most of these algorithms are really data hungry. And so people will come along with platforms and they work if you have a billion utterances and a bunch of them have to be labeled. And you go, well, I don't have that. And so that's another area sort of we've focused on, which is thinking through the pragmatic reality of most companies, which is, they might have lots of data, Mm -hmm. but they don't have much labeled data, if any, and really thinking about how you start small and sort of, you know, go bigger over time. And so um,
0: it strikes me that a lot of these early bots that big companies are putting in um, like one that, that I just came across that uh, KLM, the Dutch airline, has. They're, they're kind of structured to start labeling their human data, right? So they're in in the case of this KLM bot, um, it has some automated features. It'll send you your boarding pass inside Facebook Messenger and so on. But then for any kind of request that's more sophisticated than a, than a super basic request, it bounces you to a human who will type out the answer to it. And so they've installed this system that... Uh, you know, is superficially a bot, but really it's like a semi bot that captures a lot of their human, you know, customer service data and that they can start to structure much more effectively than probably it's like recorded, you know, recorded for quality assurance or whatever. So they have like tons and tons of, of logs, uh, you know, of that type, but cool. those aren't as useful as what they're getting now through this Facebook bot.
1: Well, I mean, that's super key, right? Which is, you know, um, Slack is one of our partners too. And, and, We think about this in terms of like the, 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 some large companies out there that, you know, will remain unnamed have really claimed that they can take gobs of unstructured data and turn it into magic. Right. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, the magic is a bunch of PhD labor thrown at it. Right. (laughs) And that's, that I think has, I think it's the right goal and I think it's the right vision. And I think, you know, those companies um, are, are trying to do the right things. But I think that there's this raw demand with companies where they're like, we've thrown off more data in the last year than we ever have in our entire history. Mm-hmm. We should be able to do something with that, right? And and there's this this meme that I may have even heard it on your podcast, actually, <laughs> that, you know, algorithms are sort of not where the battleground is. It's all about data. And while mm-hmm. that's partly true, it's not entirely true, right? And so um, being able to write the right research, like code the right research paper and combine it with the other right research paper and actually have, you know, math PhDs on staff who can go in and gain some intuition about where to tweak parameters to actually make things work is actually algorithmic work. And it's Mm -hmm. it's real to make this stuff um, actually sing. And so data is not enough either. And um, the key is what you're hinting at, John, which is, I actually think sort of day one for companies in terms of data and machine learning is yet to come. It's not Hmm. the data they've thrown off. And the companies that choose platforms that allow them to mix, to have the jobs that people are doing every day, be in tools that allow labeled, annotated data to be thrown off as a byproduct. Right. Uh, Stuart Butterfield has called this, you know, the exhaust of our sort of everyday communications mm-hmm. or, or thereabouts, right? Something like that. Data exhaust. Data yeah. exhaust. Exactly. And so y- turning that, but but not the raw exhaust, the raw exhaust is coming out and it's been turned into something that is, you know, if you think of terms of value chain, that the raw data is not just raw data, that it's one step down the value chain sort of turned into something that can be used for machine learning. And I think there's a huge amount of opportunity there for companies who start thinking about that customer service is kind of like the obvious one, Mm -hmm. but I, but I think it's, I actually think up the chain is a lot more interesting than customer service. Um, there's lots of opportunity to create tools and processes and have Tim talks all the time about how AI will alter labor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the right way to think about it. There's people whose jobs are, is going to be working with the machine to throw off data that makes the machine smarter, helps them do their job better and isn't strictly about, you know, putting people out of work. So I think that's, that's definitely the way to think about it.
2: This reminds me a lot of the last four to five years, there was the rise of data science, right? And you, I could have taken what you just said and, uh, said it to a company that was asking about, well, what's the value of data science and forget bots, right? So Mm -hmm. just the idea that we can log and we can capture all this data in general um, is something that I think it it sounds promising and it sounds good to a lot of companies. But then when it comes down to what is the specific application for your company, um, it I think it becomes a little bit more difficult. Uh, so I guess my question would be, what challenges do you see? So for the big companies, they're already recording a bunch of data. They have been doing that for a while. Where does the AI meet bot, meet data application come in?
1: That's also a great question. Um, again, my belief is that there's there's some things you can do with the pre-existing data, right? For sure. Um, but a lot of this ends up looking a lot like old school knowledge management. Mm-hmm. Um, you can parse it. You can figure stuff out with it. You can use natural language understanding. Um, you're You're not going to magically get a conversational bot of any type just from a set of log files, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, I do think there's way too many claims of we solved NLU, we solved (laughs) this happening in the bot space. And it's mostly when you look into it, people who haven't spent much time right in the space. And I think that's, I ultimately don't think it's that damaging, because I think those people just go away. But I think we have to be careful of that as an industry that we don't, completely oversell it. Like we have a lot of belief in this space. Like, you know, I have started a company, I'm all in with my co-founders on this. I really do believe this is where we all get it right. I think it's a massive opportunity. But saying that you can just take a bunch of unstructured data and get a bot out of it is is not is not true. But what you should be looking at is also saying I'm not just drawing all the lines together. So the, the magic and the sweet spot is somewhere in the middle there. And Pete, for me, it's it's that raw data can give you a starting point but again i think it's day one i think i think anyone looking to get into this space should be looking at the emerging new platforms that are taking an approach that are focused on the channel they care about Mm -hmm. if it's a voice channel great right if it's if it's an in-home in-car you know or some other voice channel that makes sense great go for one of those um if it's messaging and to me, messaging is not SMS as much as it really is new modern mobile messaging. Mm-hmm. Billion users on Facebook, three you know million daily actives on Slack, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's the type of messaging that has UI widgets, it mm-hmm. has buttons, it has graphics, it has stickers, it has emoji, it has the modern language of mobile messaging. If that's what you care about, then you should find a platform that optimizes for that. Um, and that the data that starts getting thrown off, Pete, is the day you put that platform in place. And so the way I like to think about it is every single bot creator, be it a services company, a platform company, a product company will tell you they can build a bot in 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. right? We can do that too. Anybody can do that. That's not the impressive part. The question you should be asking is what happens after 10 minutes? Like how does it get better from there? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is, well, you work harder, (laughs) like effort in intelligence out is not a great answer. And so there should be some set of, well, we do this, and that's how we guide you into designing the next. Best thing. This is where the system learns automatically and gets smarter, and coverage is better, and accuracy is higher. And here's how we use humans in the loop and get smarter. All of these things, like really practical, easy, simple answers. I know I'm not giving them to you, but that's because that's a private <laughs> conversation between <laughs> right, customers right. and I. But you know, I think having those techniques, I think, and really just being super practical and going, "Here's how we do it," and then being able to show that is is how you get to to that point, uh, Pete. So it's pick the right channel pick the vertical problem and pick a platform that gives you more than effort in and uh, quality out is is the right approach for now.
0: Pete, I really like your analogy to data science and the rise of that idea back around maybe five years ago. Um, and in fact, I think Pete and I met originally at the first Strata conference in 2011, which was the, you know, the first edition of, of O'Reilly's big sort of data science and big data conference. And the feeling there was a lot of people walking around trying to figure out what this really meant and how it could be applied. And, and like there was just this kind of phrase echoing through the escalators and the lunchroom and everywhere, like, what is your big data strategy? And it was a lot of people there who were from big companies that were well-managed and generally strategic in how they approached things. And they had been given a budget of like $4 million to hire some people and have a big data strategy. And they had all basically arrived at this conference going like, oh, I have four million dollars and I don't even know what a big data strategy is. And I'm not sure what to get out of it. And there, you know, you have vendors there who are like, oh, you just plug in our software and we make sense of your data. And then you have, um, you know, data science right in this box that, that we sell you. And a certain number of companies bought that kind of thing. And And over the last five years, there's been this big, you know, coming to an understanding across the industry of how important the initial strategy is. You can't just kind of buy a box and, and plug it into your thing and, and get value out of it. You have to think carefully about how it relates to the way that you measure things and, and manage your company.
1: I think that's a much more articulate way of saying what I was trying to say, which is, (laughs) which is, yeah, like be intentional about going into this, right? So we had a very large customer today tell us, you know, that while they haven't figured it all out yet, they believe that this is a really going to be a really enduring trend. And that they want to get ahead of it. And what they're mm-hmm. trying to do now is very much figure out what that strategy is. And, you know, these ideas around messaging is, I really like, you know, Benedict Evans talking about a third runtime. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, as a guy who has a company in the space, I like the idea <laughs> of that. But, I, but I'm but i seeing some really interesting signal from the market that even three months ago, four months ago for me, where large companies are hitting us up and Wanting to talk about their bot or messaging strategy, their mm-hmm. their words, right? And so, and and while yes, there are some who are sort of following the zeitgeist and don't have a particular point of view, it's actually been really encouraging to hear some of the really smart opinions coming out of you know thought leaders inside of really big organizations about mm-hmm. why this is meaningful. And so, I'm really bullish on there being something here, and I'm really also um, optimistic about how big companies are not just ready to throw money at it and then have it fall off the table um, in a few years, like we've largely seen with mobile voice assistants, right? That was, you know, they they sort of exist on the major mobile compute platforms, but they've Mm -hmm. all but vanished everywhere else, right? And I think we're seeing companies really take a measured approach to it because it's not brand new. When mm-hmm. mobile voice assistants came out, that was like brand new. It was like, oh my God, I'm talking to some AI thing on a on a, on a phone or a tablet. Yeah, and I'm going to make
0: Siri say something, something funny.
1: funny. Exactly. And now I think there's a mental model. I mean, this really, this is like how human progress happens, right? You see <laughs> folks gain a mental model for something that when they see the next version of it, that actually makes more sense. And mm-hmm. actually now we can see that many, many consumers are in the right place mobile after nine years has really kind of, we've all kind of decided the primary use case is messaging mm-hmm. and we're having legitimate breakthroughs in AI. Like that's really, truly fertile ground for saying, what's our strategy and why is it important to our business? And so the conversations have been really meaningful as opposed to wow we, I'm talking to my phone, right? right which I think right. is, is really great. So it's, there's just something new happening here, which is, which is awesome.
0: You are listening to the O'Reilly Bots podcast. While we take a very quick break in the discussion, I want to remind you about O'Reilly Bot Day on October 19th. We've got a phenomenal program lined up, including not only Andy Morrow and Pete Skamarock, but also Benedict Evans from Andreessen Horowitz, Lily Cheng from Microsoft, Kathy Pearl, the voice user interface designer you heard a couple of episodes ago, Amir Shavat from Slack and Joshua Browder from Do Not Pay, whom you've also heard on this program. It'll be a great lineup, and you ought to come if you're building bots, thinking about building bots, or thinking about bot strategy. For more information on O'Reilly Bot Day, or to register, visit oreilly.com slash bots. Now, back to the O'Reilly Bots podcast, interviewing Andy Morrow.
2: So you mentioned... Uh customer use cases. um, And the thing that jumps to mind, you mentioned Slack earlier. And when I think of big companies uh, thinking about bots, one version of that is maybe more B2C where, you know, there's many, many customers online. They're on messaging platforms. I need to communicate with them in some way or have some workflow or interaction um, all the way from trivial, like ordering a pizza to (laughs) more complicated uh, uh, things uh, where you're having a deep dialogue um, or completing some workflow. Um, And then when you mentioned Slack, I mean, that feels more like a B2B application. Does that that kind of divide the landscape as you see it right now between B2B and B2C bots? Um,
1: Super interesting um, question because um, we support both. And, you know, we think long and hard about that and go, are we splitting? Are we hedging our bets? Like, why are we doing that? Right. And I think, um, what's fascinating about it is a lot of the technology is still the same. And so mm-hmm. we've sort of looked at it and said, well, conventional wisdom would be like really pick, you know, you're either consumer or your enterprise and you can't be both, um, that every time we just look at the raw technology, we go, why? Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and think that we can, you know, and I'll point to a specific, um, uh, sort of example, right? Like there's people might look at something like customer service or retail sales or, you know, those kind of things. And I mean, those are fundamentally enterprise sales. Mm-hmm. And inside the company is someone sitting in front of a computer. And increasingly, as Slack is showing, the people that are sitting in front of computers are sitting in front of messaging interfaces. Mm -hmm. And so you've got an external consumer facing messaging interface, but you increasingly also have an internal facing messaging interface for communicating back. And so taking sort of a business school approach of saying, well, I'm only going to go into one, I think uh, is missing the fact that the change is happening. And this is really interesting. Simultaneously, both in the consumer and in the enterprise space. And one is feeding the other, right? Mm-hmm. Like you mm-hmm. go into office, I mean, our office is weird, man. You walk in and nobody's talking to each other sometimes and they're communicating frantically over Slack and it's yeah. quiet. And the same thing is happening on the subway because everyone's messaging each other, right? So our consumer behavior is impacting our at work behavior and vice versa. And it's yeah. all happening on messaging. And and I think to, to say that the technology can only apply in one field, I think it's just, just incorrect.
0: That's a really interesting counterexample to the kind of BYO idea that's been around for the last um, ten years. Well, almost ten years, because the iPhone came out in two thousand seven. So nine years ago, Apple created this thing that every business person wanted to have, and they bought it themselves and they brought it to the office, and then they bludgeoned their IT department into letting them use it on their you know corporate network to check their email and so on. And uh, that transformed the way that we think about how you market technology to enterprises and so on. I hadn't thought of the fact that Slack is changing the way we work, and then going back and changing the way that we expect to get in touch with our friends.
2: Yeah, there's something else uh, interesting in what you said. Uh, It reminds me of this idea of consumerization of the enterprise is kind of what we're talking Mm -hmm. about here. Um, But there's another side to that, which um, is probably hitting bot developers uh, pretty heavily, which is, it used to be that there were there were different bars between consumer and enterprise software right this bot thing is hitting both sectors at the same time and so it feels like customer expectations for an enterprise bot are pretty similar to a consumer bot andy is that what you're seeing
1: yeah i mean i think so at the end of the day and again it's it's not all text interface right the messaging for me is definitely about modern mobile messaging which is improving all the time so but when people are typing, because there is still typing and messaging, <laughs> um, whether it's on at work or whether it's, you know, at home, I think it's, it's really ultimately the same experience. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, and I'm, I'm always wary of sort of personal anecdotes, but I know that my own messaging behavior is ultra promiscuous. And what I mean by that is <laughs> when I'm texting somebody at work, like I might, I message them, I might mm-hmm. messenger them, I might Slack them on mobile. Like it, it's, It's kind of like wherever my thumb is on whatever screen I'm on is, is what I'll use. And so I think the world is just completely blurring and it, and it's increasingly messaging. I mean, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. all of us are getting huge amounts of, I mean, we're all early adopters. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and we're all of us to a fault using Slack in our workplaces. Right. So something's definitely, definitely changing there. Yeah,
0: The idea of like distinguishing between your personal email to send something and your work email to send something is, Seems sort of uh, antiquated in a way. It's like, yeah, should I create this Google Doc in my personal Google Docs account or my work Google Docs account? It just it doesn't matter at all. You expect to see things from everyone's Google Docs account.
1: Well, and what's interesting about that, right? So tying that back to like what's interesting to an enterprise or you know a brand who's looking to get into this space is being able to understand we are not work people and out of work people, right? Mm-hmm. And we're that was very poorly phrased.
2: That that sounds no, like that a very Zuckerbergian yeah. uh, <laughs> point of view.
1: Yeah, we are we are not people who you know are at work and who are at home. Like we're the uh-huh. same people in those environments, and being able to learn about our behaviors in both in a mm. way that isn't creepy or invasive, but is is actually helpful. People have been saying that for years related to advertising, etc. I do think messaging is an interesting area to allow a certain amount of that personalization to come through as long as it really does pay off in terms of the quality of the conversation that comes back to me. And I think that's emblematic of a much bigger thing, Mm -hmm. which is the web and mobile for all their grandeur and how much they've, you know, changed the world have been basically catalogs, like static Mm -hmm. interfaces for everybody. I mean, normally we'd call that lowest common denominator. I don't think that's quite right in the context of the (laughs) way they've altered the world. But I think, Another thing that people are really excited about with messaging is the ability to have some kind of adaptive user interface that might be the words that come back to me, but it might also be the mm-hmm. pictures, right? Like if I'm in a banking application and you can anticipate why I'm coming in there, if it's to check my balance or it's to pay a bill, mm-hmm. i don't show me all the complexity. I mean, a huge part of, you know, going into UX and stuff like that is don't overload me with every single thing that I need to see. I mean, part of the bad gray box 1985 enterprise software experience that Slack fixes is removing clutter and complexity. And so messaging is, I think, the first time we've actually, I mean, you could have done this. You Mm -hmm. could have dynamically generated web pages, dynamically generated mobile apps, but in general, the effort was not sort of worth it or it was too hard to do. And I think messaging is the first time we're going to see over the next few years as we figure out these interfaces that interfaces that are super adaptive to people, that, that really meet them Both on the channel they're on and the device they're on, but also in terms of what they need. And that's super, super exciting.
0: Yeah, to extend your example, it's it's ridiculous that you go to your bank's website and then click on the drop down menu and then click on login, and then click on my account and then click on check balance like that's the, the bank ought to be able to anticipate why you're going there. If, if not through a cookie, then, you know, through something.
1: And that kind of behavior is just like classical model, you know, machine learning kind of things, right? Which yeah. is this person always does this, you know, what should we present to them from a UI perspective? So
2: I think, I think we're definitely going there. So I guess the question, this kind of leads us into maybe a, a platform discussion, which is the example that John just gave, that could totally be done by the bank website, right? They just maybe don't have a data team and don't have like a basic functioning web app, much less a data team. Um, no offense to all the banks, either, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's a they're good beauty. people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the the where I'm going with this is the vision you described of this personalized conversational experience. It feels like that depends a lot on the platforms exposing a good identity layer. Um, so basically, instead of the bank building that in-house in their web app. If these platforms, which we're all on anyway and have this great conversational history, um, are exposing that context and that identity, then the the the, the bank could use a platform like Automat or or other systems to expose that experience you described. Right. Definitely. I mean, and and we need to be careful here too to not sort of
1: massively overpromise. Like everybody's not sure. getting their own bespoke messaging interface to an enterprise mm-hmm. anytime soon, right? But I think some of this is about saying, why is this an enduring trend and, and an important pattern? And it's, it's about the places you can go from what we can build today. And I think that's that, that level of personalization in terms of, and you've used this, I enjoyed the Dashbot uh, v- podcast last time, right? I mean, the, the notion of talking about um, when you provide someone with a conversational interface, they will tell you what they want, not mm-hmm. just tap what they see. So being able to capture that information in a secure, non-privacy invading sort of way is going to give people experiences that they've never had before. And I think some of that will be worth it. And So so some part of that is going to be the platforms providing some of the personalization layer. And you're already seeing things with this today on uh, Facebook providing some information that if you do some kind of sign up, they put your name and your email address and your phone number. And I don't think people particularly mind that. I think that's actually pretty great. So things like onboarding, right? This Mm -hmm. is one of those areas that many, many people realize bots would be a great onboarding experience and they surely will be. It's certainly not enough to sustain a business, but it's a good use case if you can pre-fill most of the stuff you know about me and ask me the questions that are on the periphery. So that's important, but the platforms also need to be really careful of people's privacy for sure, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. just exposing uh, stuff because bot platforms and builders would like access to it, I think is, probably the wrong approach. Um, I don't know yet what the right approach is. I think there's going to be some level of letting people provide it and furnish it. I think there's going to be some level of, you know, if you're telling me about a movie preference, that's maybe okay to remember and store. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely don't store my credit card, right? That kind of stuff. So I think the rules of engagement on that one are still somewhat to be written. I think it's really important to note that while... The messaging platforms have opened up. That while many of us think this is a third runtime, that while many <laughs> large companies are investigating their bot strategy, that still, for the most part, this is not a paradigm consumers understand. Mm-hmm. Um, they're starting to open up. But discovery is a real problem. Most people have not yet used a bot um, or even aware that you can have brand experiences over Messenger. And so we have a long way to go. And I think jumping right into like, let me ask you all this person identifying information so I can offer you a better experience is maybe we should just focus on solving a few problems and offering a great experience out of the gate. And then, and then we start figuring out, I think, some of those longer term
2: patterns, Pete. You mentioned a good point, which we've talked about before in the podcast, which is do consumers get this yet? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it does seem the consensus out there seems to be it, it is still very early. Um, part of doing this uh, podcast is, uh, I think, a search for intelligent life in the <laughs> universe of bots. Right. And part of that, there I are think, a lot of bots out there. We're looking for there, the humans among the bots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, or, or the bots that are smart enough uh, to have a repeat engagement. Um, and you mentioned Alexa. I think that's kind of an interesting one for me. In a small group setting where I do interact with it pretty regularly, pretty much daily. Um, and one thing that I wonder is, to go to the next level, do most bots need a corresponding app? Right. So some of the business cases you're you're talking about, there already is an app. It is like the business has an app, they have a website. Now they need a bot as another channel. Um, so do you think there for there's bot 1st startups? Uh, and then there's this other flavor of bots, which are another channel to reach um, your users, which how, how bullish are you on the bot, bot for a strategy for startups? Um, I'm pretty bullish
1: on it. I mean, I, I think the problems related to app download and usage are real. Um, I would love to have somebody commission a study at some point. Maybe we'll have to pay for it. I don't know. That, that gets the up-to-date numbers because the, tw- the, the numbers everyone quotes is, are from 2014, right? Mm-hmm. Which is 65.5% of people download zero applications in a given month. Mm-hmm. And then I believe it was Mary Meeker in her Internet Trends Report talked about the downloads that were happening in the other 35%. And mm-hmm. 62% of those were Facebook, Instagram, Messenger, and WhatsApp. And almost all of the rest of them
0: are abandoned after being downloaded.
1: Well, that's the usage part of it is a real problem, right? So you add in Snapchat and Pokemon Go, whatever the flavor Mm -hmm. of the month is, and like, you're basically not getting your app downloaded. Now we should remember people already have their banking app and maybe their cinema app. And so those apps are not going away. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that there's no apps being used and those get used infrequently enough that they're kind of noise. So Apps are still being used, but it's a real problem, Pete, to say I'm a brand or I'm a product or I'm a service and I'm trying to get on people's radar. And even if I can pay for that app download and get it, I mean, it's ending up on some back screen. So I I wouldn't want to be in the hits business like Pokemon Go with my Mm -hmm. business. I think that's a legit problem. And I haven't really heard anyone say like you can definitely say, well, the app is a better experience. Mm -hmm. Sure. Of course, Mm -hmm. the app's a better experience. Right. Um. But if you can't get someone to download it and use it and remember to use it, then you have a real problem. So I think the first like that's definitely part of what brands see here. And I think that's part of what's helping push this over the edge, like the the, the move to messaging AI improvements are real. But I think the catalyst and the reason we're seeing so much dramatic interest right now is just that people are looking for some alternative to mobile. And so mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, if, if you can get enough of a user base that it makes sense to build a mobile app, I mean, that's great. And you want to provide some of the bells and whistles that you can do. But I think really what you're going to see happen is over time, the messaging platforms, especially the consumer ones like Messenger, are going to add enough application richness mm-hmm. that users aren't going to care. Like, it really isn't that hard to add location services. Like it's a byproduct of how early this state the, the the market is right now, and the and and where Facebook is at that they haven't added that, right? I mean, yes, there's cards with buttons, and you can only have three buttons, and that's a major limitation. Like all of that stuff right. is going to get fixed most likely. Yeah,
0: it's a list of like 30 API calls that they just haven't written yet.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I think the trick is it can't ever become iOS rich because Mm -hmm. then you've just moved mobile somewhere else right? and you'll end up with the same problem. And contrary to what some others believe, I mean, the sort of WeChat idea of full screen web views, Mm -hmm. I think at least North America has voted and said, we don't like web views inside of our native apps, right? That happened years ago. And I think there will most likely be some emergence of what I think will be sort of rich UI elements inside of these bubbles, just enough UI for us to not miss our UI with just enough ability to pop into a text box to type when we Mm -hmm. don't see what we want. And that becomes the emergent paradigm. And really, that shouldn't surprise us because that's browse and search. And that's kind Mm -hmm. of the dominant paradigm. I can click where I want to click and I can type where I want to type. And I don't want one or the other of those worlds. I want both.
0: Right. There's a whole genre of mobile app that has always been transparently overkill as mobile app. But a mobile app is kind of a way to create a bookmark on your user's computing device. And so something like an app that looks up movie showtimes or something like that really is like way better if it's just a Google search that you do for Star Wars San Francisco showtimes. That's way faster than opening up the movie time lookup app on your phone. There are a variety of other apps like this, especially in the beginning, a lot of um, apps that enterprises put out uh we're basically just, you know, wrappers for their mobile web page, which is just the worst thing to put your, you know, customers through. So I think that that whole chunk of mobile apps now has an alternative that's that's way more compelling.
1: For sure. And I mean, one area that's really super exciting that we haven't talked about, like everyone's talking about big brands mm-hmm. and sort of Slack as the the two markets, but there's a huge undercurrent. We see it all the time of Uh, the segment of the market that I just like to call underserved by mobile. So we're Mm -hmm. sort of nine years into the modern mobile era and a lot of, and it's not just companies. People are going to say, oh, he's talking about SMBs. It's not just SMBs. There's all kinds of interesting niche areas that are unexplored Mm -hmm. that really didn't participate in mobile because mobile required a high degree of design sense that even large companies took years to get good at and build DNA in house Hmm. and a small company couldn't do it. And even years ago, it was hard to get somebody to download your app if you were, you know, outside of the mainstream. And now what you're seeing is of course, SMB is the obvious one, right? Which is all of a sudden I can participate in mobile in like a really nice way, like inside of messenger with a really nice experience and reach my customers that way. And that's super appealing to the whole segment of the market that isn't like a massive brand mm-hmm. um, and, and that people already know and are willing to download the app on. So I think that's another really exciting kind of democratization of the most important compute device we all have, which is mobile. So,
2: Yeah, Andy, one of the aha moments for me, so I've mostly been building things on Slack, um, but I was playing with Facebook uh, with their some bots on Facebook the other day, and I've noticed the barrier to using those bots get extremely low uh, which is really nice. So if you're, you know, uh, having some issue with with a small business or you even just want to check the menu, uh, if you go to their Facebook page uh, and you try to talk to them, it just, you're instantly interacting with a bot. I didn't have to download an app. I didn't have to install it. I didn't have to go open it. Um, I'm just instantly interacting with that application. How do you feel about, uh, like, the Facebook platform and... and the, Ease of use so far. Yeah. I mean, the, the platform discussion
1: is an interesting one. Um, this is going to sound like pandering, but I really do think all of them have some pretty major things to recommend them. Mm-hmm. Um, Messenger, like, apart from the fact that they have a billion people, like, that's obviously appealing. But if we talk about the platform as a builder, as someone who uses that and lives in it every day, um, Messenger has been really quick to, to create new affordances for messaging. Uh, applications very quickly that many of which I hope become standards right so Mm -hmm. you think about messaging it's inherently a vertical uh, kind of application invention of things like the horizontal scroll you know to add another dimension to it is just really obvious and frankly gives you a lot of optionality in designing pretty rich experiences, Um, you know, things like persistent menus and suggested replies, which I think really was sort of pioneered by Kik. Mm -hmm. Um, Those things really go a long way, but I really think we're early days, right? And I think it will, there's there's these different schools that, you know, are emerging as sort of religious wars in messaging, which is, you know, do we use natural language? Do we use AI? Or is everything just a GUI and it's really Mm -hmm. just about being in the messaging app? And like, of course, it's both, right? I mean, back to the browse and search sort of... uh, idea again that you really want both you're never getting rid of that text bar and the only reason people are not going to type there right now is because the bots are not good enough and they don't understand and they're not getting better fast enough right part of the reason alexa is so great like alexa did not emerge you know zeus's eyebrow style fully formed <laughs> like it those those questions that you could ask like what song is playing mm-hmm. or you know those kinds of things that are surprising they got their by the Alexa team looking into it and understanding it and adding that capability. And so the trick is the Alexa team is not, you know, an SMB or even a brand that wants to play around in this space. Everyone can't afford to put in the amount of money that it took Alexa to, to build out and understand that. So again, back to the sort of what do we what do we need from a technology perspective, we need anybody to be able to discover what needs to be in their platform and guide Mm -hmm. them towards adding it in so but i think messenger has just been awesome at pioneering the the ui like there's conversational user interface right i I, i'm not sure i feel about the kui is how we say it (laughs) quay yeah exactly but i think it's real and it's like is it conversation or is it ui and i think they've been really great at pioneering the ui part of it so um
2: yeah it feels like uh on slack the browse is quite a bit harder um so there's no such like horizontal scroll things like that um so if you are in that religious camp of everything should be done via text um and slack i feel like comes a little bit more or at least originally was more in that direction with slash commands and Mm -hmm. it felt very much like a sysadmin Mm -hmm. would view a bot platform right um but it it is for the search use case it could work but i think knowing what you can do with a bot, I think becomes a a bit more complicated. Is that what you mean by browse? Like knowing what's there and how to click around? What the affordances are.
1: What the affordances are. There's something on screen that I don't have to guess what, what can be understood. And, you know, I mean, talking about Slack, I mean, Yes, Slack doesn't have horizontal scroll. I wish they would because I, I think they they optimize a little bit for their desktop experience, which makes sense. But I use the mobile Slack client a ton and their horizontal scroll would make a ton of sense. But you know, Slack actually does have, you know, if you're if you're in the world of like you eat, breathe, and sleep, these different messaging formats and APIs. Mm-hmm. Um, Slack actually has a really, really rich messaging format, you know, where you can attach all kinds of stuff and you can actually almost create UIs using the different uh, techniques they have around creating messages with attachments, you Mm -hmm. know, that are images and they've added buttons and you you can get a surprising amount done. And, you know, I think coming out of mobile where we all just like we all did. And it was it was fun while it lasted to fall in love with design <laughs> and like all all become amateur designers and make uh-huh. friends with, you know, awesome designers and make everything look great. I mean that, that stuff matters and we have emotional responses to it. But there's also just the world of getting stuff done. And and I think we're actually gonna find a nice middle ground here. Like that's it. Mobile was really expensive to build and you mm-hmm. had to be really, really good at a lot of really, really hard things. And that was fun. But I think messaging is is gonna get us to a spot that isn't a dumbed-down version of mobile, It's, but it's going to be a lot cheaper to build and mm-hmm. deliver experiences and update them frequently. But because we're going to get this personalized UI at the far end of it, people are not going to end up missing, you know, gradients and flat design and whatever we're arguing right, about, skeuomorphism right. versus flat. Like, that was fun, but it was a little academic, I think. So. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, design became this kind of universal preoccupation to the degree that I think um, a lot of other things are overlooked in the pursuit of... Of beautiful design.
1: Well, and artificial intelligence is going to take that over, right? And that's where you start to see these monumental shifts, the sort of titans of industry, of where they've been spending their time. And it's not that design is not important, it clearly is. But so is artificial intelligence, and so is what you can get from a user experience out of that.
0: So speaking of AI, um, you know, I think Microsoft has a a kind of a bot approach that integrates both the platform, you know, they have uh, Skype, which is becoming an important messaging platform, has been an important messaging platform for a long time. And they have the Microsoft Bot Framework, and they have a lot of AI tools as well, kind of in the larger you know, Microsoft ecosystem.
1: Yes, I think Microsoft's done a really great job of playing to their strengths. Um, they've been very articulate very early on about how they view artificial intelligence and uh, the various ecosystems of uh, assistance and bots and all this kind of stuff. And I think they, they get it. So for them, Cortana is not a bot. Mm -hmm. Cortana is, I'm not sure what word they use, but an intelligent assistant or a virtual assistant. I think that makes lots of sense. You know, Pete and I have used the term God bot in the past Mm -hmm. for that, right? Sort of the top level bot. And I think it was the previous generation and bots, like when we coin new phrases for things like as human beings, I think it kind of anticipates the fact that something new is happening and we're not yet sure how to articulate it, but we've picked a word. Mm-hmm. And we used to use virtual assistant or personal assistant or digital assistant for the Cortanas, you know, series, Google Nows, et cetera, the world. And and now we're using bots. And so I think Microsoft's been really articulate about saying we have this strategy where Cortana is in one place at the top level. Mm-hmm. And now we're creating an ecosystem of bots that are more uh sort of purpose driven. Mm-hmm. And On top of that, they're playing to, you know, a strength they've always been well known for, which is sort of developer ecosystem and tools. And, you know, I have a lot of admiration for what they've done in terms of opening up many, many components of AI. So they have like really great computer vision APIs that they've opened up and they have really great, you know, predictive machine learning APIs that they've opened up in addition to their sort of bot framework aspects to it. Um, They've also been really great, Um, although everyone's been really great in terms of big companies about sort of communicating in, in or and participating in the community, which I think mm-hmm. is fantastic. So Microsoft's been there since day one, Facebook, you know, kick Slack, everyone has been there. And I think in a world without standards and where the technology is really immature, like it is in this space, mm-hmm. seeing big companies sort of getting together and, and, and talking with startups and stuff has been super encouraging. And I think Microsoft has actually really helped lead the way on that.
0: And I think Microsoft's, um, Approach to Cortana, their strategy for Cortana has been excellent as well. It's it's the most accessible of these kind of personal assistants to developers, um, the most deeply uh, accessible through an API. Uh, we we've heard, of course, you know Siri is going to have a few capabilities opened up to developers. Uh, Google is talking about something similar earlier this summer at Google I/O. They they were talking about Google Assistant. At this point, it's more of a concept than anything else, but it's the idea that. It's this kind of ambient intelligence layer that's over Google Now, over your messaging apps, and it's kind of gathering stuff and and supplying data to a handful of different services. But that's more or less uh, Microsoft's approach with Cortana so far.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... This is far from a new idea, but I, I think the play long term, like discovery is this huge problem for everyone in the bot space right now. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the platform companies don't understand it. So the obvious question is, well, like, why are they not solving it? And I think at least part of this, if you take bot shops out of the equation anyway, um, is that those top level intelligent assistants mm-hmm. become the discovery and surfacing vehicle. It's pretty obvious, but it's a hard problem, right? Mm-hmm. So if I say I need to pay my visa bill and I've got bots for, and this is why I think, frankly, Siri has not opened up earlier, and I, and I want to pay a bill um, or I want to buy a plane ticket, mm-hmm. whose bot do I call, right? This mm-hmm. this disambiguation or triage or routing question is, is actually non-trivial without introducing just like a horrible layer of manual disambiguation right, right. to the user. So um, that said, I fundamentally think it's a solvable problem, right, um, in terms of who am I most likely to use, I think that gets very interesting as you relate it back to things like search,
0: mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. gets
1: surfaced first. Um, and if that's a byproduct of an actual real attempt on the half of the platform companies to really try and help me and surface what is, I'm most likely to use, that becomes a very valuable place for them to be. And I'm bullish as you know a bot builder and a bot platform provider that... Because it's such a strategic place for them to be mm-hmm. that they're gonna make it work and they're gonna rely on us to provide that underlying value, which is if they can route to us, what they route to has to be be really good. And I think it's actually just a really elegant architecture that makes tons of sense, but I think we're early and we're trying to figure it out. Like in many things, the hype is predating the reality, and I think we're we're gonna emerge out the far side stronger and with real use cases. I think you're already starting to see it happen. Like the yeah. hype cycle is eroding and and people, are starting to, very early stages, figure out the use cases, patterns, design, customers, business mm-hmm. models. I and mean, we've barely talked about business models. I mean, that makes sense in this space and, and will be lasting.
2: Do, do you think, Andy, there's anybody working on a uh, bot rank within Google or <laughs> Microsoft?
1: Um, see, it's the equivalent of for sure, I would bet. Um, the question is how literal is it, right? Like I think people keep saying, Oh, Facebook needs to have a bot shop. And I'm like, no, they don't. That just gets us back to the same problem we've always Mm -hmm. had. And maybe Mm -hmm. as an intermediate step, because the app store was great when there was only a few thousand things in it. And so a bot shop could be great if there's only a few thousand things in it too, Mm -hmm. but there certainly needs to be a long-term plan. Otherwise we just end up back where we started.
0: To your point a minute ago, Andy, I, I, I think, um, what we've seen so far is that the bot community is more aware of itself and more aware of the hype cycle than a lot of communities with new technological trends uh, tend to be. And so there's a lot of effort to identify best practices, figure out what really resonates with people, what some good design patterns are and to, and to follow them. And you, you also kind of see the community in, in some cases turning down the volume a little bit on some bots and some technologies that are you know, overly hypey or, or not really worthwhile.
1: Um. Yeah, I think it's a really healthy thing for for the industry to not be overly hyperbolic. I mean, I think it definitely classically, this is going to be overestimated in the short term and underestimated in the long term. Um, AI is a real trend. It's it's going to change the shape of everything in the, around us in the same way that we never used to see people holding phones. We're going to see mm-hmm. self-driving cars. That's going to be the most obvious visual uh, way that this happens. But I also think that this whole trend represents uh, a going back to sort of what's a little bit more natural about technology, right? So my favorite hobby is to sort of grab 20-year-old's phones and look (laughs) at them. And I'm I'm both encouraged as a guy who has a business to find that there's mostly messaging applications Uh and also just kind of encouraged as a human being, right? Which is, we've gone back to where this is just about communication. And so
0: for me because these 20 year olds don't have anything except messaging apps on their phones.
2: For, uh, so so wait a minute, you're you mean people are using their phones to communicate with each other? I know, shocking. <laughs> um,
1: so that's that to me is is the the hyperbolic part of this, right? Which is we're actually seeing like a real naturally occurring shift in human behavior on technology platforms mm-hmm. and all of the pieces are coming together. In terms of the platforms doing the right things, in terms of artificial intelligence, and so in terms of customers wanting to reach End users in a new way, like everything is really lining up almost perfectly. Like as someone who started a business way before any of this was totally obvious, you kind of look at it and go, the dominoes have all fallen down. Mm-hmm. So that's worth being a little hyperbolic about. But where I think we, the community's been really awesome is is not being hyperbolic about where we're at today, right? Right. right. So and not, you're you're not going to have human level conversations over messaging with a bot today. And, and the community has been good, I think, about about being realistic about that.
0: Right. So you ran through a second ago um, a, a few of the big platforms, Facebook Messenger, Slack, and uh, Microsoft. Do you have like a sleeper platform that you're really interested in right now?
1: Yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel like a sleeper for me because I'm in it every day. But I, I'm actually really bullish on Kick. So um, maybe it's just because I'm Canadian and they're Canadian, <laughs> but um, but they're, they're really interesting uh, uh, along a few dimensions. So first of all, their primary demographic is 13 to 19, right? Okay. So it's kind of a prize demographic um, depending on sort of what company you are in terms of reaching them. They have super, super high engagement, like just ludicrously long hmm. times chatting both with each other and with bots. Um, they were very early to the bot game in terms of opening up, um, they're the, you know, one of the first to have a bot shop. They've done a really nice job, um, with commercializing it and innovating Mm -hmm. on business models and working with entrepreneurs to figure out those business models, connect us to customers, um, and that kind of stuff. And, and they're really doing interesting, interesting work. And I, I think they're emblematic of an idea, which is, that these messaging platforms actually all kind of have their own purpose, mm-hmm. right? Going back to that sort of 20 year olds, why do they have multiple messaging apps? Right, it's right. Because they all kind of serve some niche purpose. Um, in the minds of the users in terms of, of what they do and so and Kick is it has its own niche for sure and I think it's it's really interesting they're super supportive I mean just funny things like they've got great partner support and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. they know how to to, to contact and, and work with entrepreneurs which is really cool so um, I think they've got you know their heads screwed on their, their platform is is very strong and, and you know I think uh, not as many people are paying attention to them as maybe should be and they've been big innovators and supporters I mean Ted their CEO has been talking about bot and messaging and why this is important way before many other people have been so
0: and has also been one of the voices tamping down the hype on occasion
1: definitely definitely I mean I, I in terms of hes he's also one of the guys that's sort of been saying we don't need artificial intelligence I don't totally agree with that but I think you know I think that is about tamping down hype in the short term and saying mm-hmm. listen we don't need to jump. To artificial intelligence, in order for these platforms to have value, which I completely agree with, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I just think you know when you understand the tech and you see what's what's available and possible, that you would say, of course, if I if I had that ability to also have some level of conversational technology and have you know conversations that are are meaningful and and experiences where my customer is not stuck if they don't see the button uh-huh. that they were looking for, or they don't walk away going, well, that was kind of shallow, you know, I think all things being equal, having, having great UI affordances and conversation is sort of the way to go. So, but, but I think, I think kick will, will get there and, you know, I mean, we're working with them. So I think they see the value in that. And, um, they're definitely, definitely a sleeper. If you're trying to reach a 15 year old, that's the place, the place to be. And I mean, they're the, and I think more importantly, if you're looking to understand the behaviors that are going to drive the future interactions, right, right. when you look there and you see really long conversations, with bots that are not particularly smart or engaging, and you go, wow, people are really kind of starved for this level of interaction, I think there's something really neat, right? Pete's talked about Zhao Ice multiple times. I mean, this idea of, I really want to chat with someone. Mm -hmm. And if you're smart enough and clever enough and interesting enough, again, not human level, Mm -hmm. but not like brain dead, like I might actually want to have a conversation with you about getting my makeup done or Mm -hmm. doing my hair or buying clothes or any number of things that are maybe very teenager oriented, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but like are meaningful in the moment and can lead to deeper engagement and, and, you know, ultimately uh, not to be crass about it, but can, can lead to, you know, e-commerce events and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Sure. But I mean, I think the, the whole trick is providing real value, understanding why people want to chat with these things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, if there's a moment where you can do something interesting from a business perspective and and, and that kind of thing, great. But it, it starts from providing value. I mean, a lot of the early cases were like, buy some flowers. Right. And it's like, dude, like buy me a drink first. You <laughs> know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right, um, right, right. and so I think we're starting to see that now, which is that the pattern is like, You've got to be pretty smart, and you've got to provide some value and entertain me and, and engage me in some way, and and then maybe we'll we'll you know actually go ahead and buy something at some point.
2: Right. Yeah. And I, I like where you're going with this longer conversation. So one of the things when we talked about Chai, we talked about uh, Microsoft's Tay, and that was large largely trained on tweets, from what I understand. Um, and tweets were this strange affordance where it's like 140 characters, self-contained. Probably most people are reading tweets who are using Twitter and not tweeting themselves. Uh-huh. Um, and versus in Kick or something where you have a longer threaded conversation, the training data there is a lot more interesting when you think about AI for bots. Um, and so it'll be interesting. I I think that we I think AI does need to be a part of this for it to work well and the the way you can make these things seem really magic is probably by tapping those unique data sets and advantages you have in that in those long conversations
1: for sure i mean for sure right and i mean it, one of the problems that we spend a lot of time thinking about is conversations like this one human conversations the reason we love talking to each other is there is a discovery element to it, right? We don't Mm -hmm. always know what somebody's going to say. Sometimes we don't even know what's going to come out of our own mouth sometimes, right? And so that can be a really interesting experience when it feels organic. And that ability to, to generate... Right. If we if we really talk a little bit about the technology, right, you talk about generative deep learning and the ability to, you know, these things where people train on large data sets like Shakespeare um, Mm -hmm. and then output. It's it's really funny because it's quite good at emulating kind of tone and style, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. in some sense you might've thought would be the hard part, but, but isn't. Mm -hmm. And, but it's mostly gibberish, right? It doesn't have the ability to actually generate a meaningful response. And there's going to be a lot of work put into that. And that, that'll be a big deal, but that's, that's still a ways out in terms of being able to really just generate smart replies. So a lot of it is still somewhat scripted. The Mm -hmm. trick again is start out scripted, build your bot in 10 minutes, and then figure out how to add that rich Discovery element to it that is not truly generative, meaning Mm -hmm. the person who built it could tell you what it was going to say next given an input, but where the breadth of it is um, able to grow, and you know maybe you were able to handle a certain dialogue, but you hadn't thought to to build it out in that way, but your system can still handle it. Those kinds of things are where we're going to see the next set of breakthroughs, and Mm -hmm. I think we're going to get to the point, like with Alexa. Right. Helix is trivial to break. You guys break it every time you do a demo. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But people still love it because they've and I think when you think about it in the context of bots, not not a Siri, not one of these things that kind of promises top level, like ask me anything. Mm -hmm. But a bot is by definition, a scoped, purposeful kind of entity. That it's more of an Alexa, which means people, I think, are going to scope themselves. Generally speaking, to what it is about, they're still Mm going to try and ask a joke, and they're all still going to try and have sex with your bot. I don't, you know, so that's a whole other (laughs) anthropological study. But outside of the things where they try and mess with it a little bit, I think they'll they'll largely, um, it's more naturally scoped, and I think that's a really great opportunity to to drive some some really good experiences for end consumers, and I think that's where people will start to go, oh, like this stuff works like they do with Alexa and they'll get their favorite bots and they won't use everything. Yeah. But then it'll be up to brands and companies again to, you know, do their regular marketing and media pushes to to be able to get people to use them. But the, but the technology will be there and the fact that there's no download and it's all there and you can do a scan code. I mean, the scan code stuff hasn't even really gotten mm-hmm. started. I mean, we're working with customers right now that are talking about and are going to do marketing pushes. I mean, we're talking like paper media Mm -hmm. with scan codes on it. We haven't seen very much of that, if any of that in North America, yet. and that that's coming. And I think that's going to be, you know, it's really going to change things. So
0: Andy, it's been terrific to have you on. If listeners want to find you, where do they look?
1: Uh, Sure. This has been awesome. Thanks guys. I really appreciate uh, you having me on. Um, If you want to look for us, you can find us at automat.ai. You know, if you're a brand, a company, a developer who's looking to build a better bot and has been disappointed with the sort of state of the art so far, uh, look us up. We'd love to just even have a conversation with you, you know, talk about this stuff, figure out where things are going and, you know, help plot a strategy.
0: Terrific. Thanks so much, Andy. Thanks, guys. If you're interested in learning more about bots, if you're thinking about building bots, if you're building bots, you definitely want to come to O'Reilly Bot Day on October 19th in San Francisco. Pete and I have put together a program that I think is going to be really fantastic. And for more information on that, visit O'Reilly.com slash bots. Thanks for joining us on O'Reilly Bots. We'll see you next week. I'm John Bruner.
2: And I'm Pete Skomrock.